Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew root perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, Judges chapter 13. We just got started last time on studying the next judge cycle in the book of Judges, the story of the immature and petulant strongman Samson. And I gave you a bit of an overview of what to expect, and we drew a parallel between Paul's lament in Romans 7 that even with the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, even then, his old nature at times still triumphed over the new one made available to him by his trust in Yeshua. Now, while Paul, it seems, succeeded to be obedient to the Ruach HaKodesh in larger proportion to his failures, after submitting to Christ anyway, the opposite was true for Samson. Samson seemed to have only brief moments of spiritual triumphs interspersed among long periods of fleshly failures. Now we're going to read Judges 13 in a moment, but first I'd like to remind you of the time frame we're dealing with during Samson's escapades. Samson judged from around 1070 B.C. to about 1050 B.C. This is a virtual overlap with the time that Samuel lived and Eli, Eli, the high priest, during some of that time, maybe even a couple of years earlier, was around. Another judge by the name of Abdon also judged during that same period. Now, this is a good example of how the Shoftim, the judges of Israel, operated in different parts of Canaan, affecting only a few or maybe even a single tribe at any given time. In other words, while Samson was operating within the tribe of Dan, Samuel tended to operate with the southern tribal coalition that had Judah at its head, and Abdon tended to operate with the northern Israelite tribes and to a degree the tribes on the east side of the Jordan River. So even though the book of Samuel follows the book of Judges in the Bible, in reality, Samson and uh, Samuel operated generally concurrently. So open your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. Judges 13, which is 286 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Judges 13. Again, the people of Israel did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, and Adonai handed them over to the Pelishtim, the Philistines, for 40 years. There was a man from Sorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren, childless. The angel of Adonai appeared to the woman and said to her, Listen, you are barren, you haven't had a child, but you will conceive and bear a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink any wine or other intoxicating liquor and don't, let, don't eat anything unclean for indeed you will conceive and bear a son. No razors to touch his head because the child will be a Nazir, a Nazarite for God from the womb. Moreover, he will begin to rescue Israel from the power of the Pelishtim. And the woman came and told her husband, she said, a man of God came to me. His face was fearsome. Like that of an angel of God. I didn't ask him where he came from and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, listen, 
you will conceive and bear a son. So now don't drink any wine or other intoxicating liquor and don't eat anything unclean because the child will be a Nazir from for God from the womb until the day he dies. Then Manoch prayed to Adonai, Please, Adonai, let that man of God you sent come again to us and teach us what we should do for the child who will be born. And God paid attention to what Manoch said and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But her husband Manoch wasn't with her. The woman hurried and ran to tell her husband, Here, that man, the one who came to me the other day, he's come again. And Manoch got up, followed his wife, and went to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he answered, I am. Manoch answered, asked, Now, when what you said comes true, what are the guidelines for raising the child? What should be done for him? And the angel of Adonai said to Manoah, The woman should take care to do everything I said to her. She shouldn't eat anything that comes from a grapevine. She shouldn't drink wine or other intoxicating liquor. She shouldn't eat anything unclean. She should do everything I ordered her to do. Manoah said to the angel of God, Please stay with us a bit longer so that we can cook a young goat for you. And the angel of Adonai said to Manoah, Even if I do stay, I won't eat your food. If you prepare a burnt offering, you must offer it to Adonai. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of Adonai. Manoah said to the angel of Adonai, Tell us your name so that when your words come true we can honor you. The angel of Adonai answered him, Why are you asking about my name? It's wonderful. Manoah took the kid and the grain offering and offered them on the rock to Adonai. And then Manoah and his wife, looking on, the angel did something wonderful. As the flame went upward towards the sky from the altar, the angel of Adonai went up into the flame from the altar. And when Manoah and his wife saw it, they fell to the ground on their faces. But the angel of Adonai did not appear again to Manoah or to his wife. And then Manoah realized it had been the angel of Adonai. Manoah said to his wife, Oh, we will surely die because we've seen God. But his wife said to him, if Adam and I wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from us, and he wouldn't have shown us all this or told us such things at this time. The woman bore a son and called him Shimson, Samson. And the child grew, and Adam and I blessed him. And the spirit of Adam and I began to stir him when he was in the camp of Dan between Sorah and Eshtaol. Although we get the typical announcement that precedes every new judge cycle that the Lord, or rather that the people of Israel did again what was evil in the Lord's eyes, and we're told, as usual, that the Lord punished his errant people by turning them over to an oppressor, in this case the Philistines, interestingly, what we do not get is any record of the people crying out to the Lord for deliverance. Now I covered that issue lightly last week when I explained that the so-called oppression of the Philistines was rather easily accepted by Israel, at least by the tribe of Dan. The Philistines were a technologically and culturally advanced society. And even though it was their military might that allowed them to conquer so many areas all along the military, the Mediterranean seacoast, that advanced society 
impressed everyone around them. Even so, the Philistines also were not barbarians, and their culture was generally attractive to people they ruled over. Thus, the Israelite tribe of Dan seemed to be somewhat apathetic about their condition. It apparently bothered God a whole lot more than it did them because he raised up Samson, Shimshon, to deal with the Philistines on their behalf. But we also need to understand about the condition of the tribe of Dan at this time. Dan never firmly held any of the territory that it had been allotted right here in this area. Rather, in fairly short order, after their arrival in Canaan, families of Dan started moving into, out into the more secure territories of some of the other Israelite tribes. A large contingent of Dan pulled up stakes and went way north, up to the Lebanon border region, and established a new center of residence up there in what they considered to be better conditions. Up north, they established the cult city of Dan. They went far astray in their worship. And in time, they were also forced out of that area and scattered. Matter of fact, large remnants of Dan have been discovered in Africa. And many have made Aliyah to Israel. Now, you can actually visit the ruins of the northern city of Dan today. And it's quite a beautiful and fascinating place. Now, obviously, not everyone from Dan wanted to take such drastic action as to pull up stakes and move north. So a lot of them stayed behind in a number of small enclaves in the central part of uh, Canaan. It is self-evident that, that people who chose to stay were more willing than those who moved north to submit to the governance of the Philistines and, to varying degrees, were willing to assimilate into Philistine society. This is the case with Samson and the Danites that he lived among. Now, while each judge was a little different from the others in their personal natures and in their duties, Samson was probably the most unique. For one thing, his birth was foretold and announced by the angel of the Lord. And that is what the first few verses of Judges 13 details. Why was Samson singled out for such an honor? You know, we don't ever really learn why. However, the rabbis reckoned that such a thing must have meant that Samson was on a very high spiritual plane. This leads to the second unique aspect of Samson. He never raised up an army, nor did he ever lead his tribe in an uprising against their oppressors. Instead, we see Samson generally operate as a one-man gang in a manner that could never possibly topple the Philistines from power. Rather, he was just a constant royal pain in the neck all right, for God's enemy. And even this, on the surface, mostly stemmed from Samson's utter lack of self-control and warped moral compass. Now, this would be a good time to mention that Samson is seen very differently in rabbinical Judaism than in Christian academic circles. Okay? And in this case, it's the rabbis that are really out there 
in their viewpoint on Samson. Now, as we proceed, we're going to see Samson do some outrageous things, far from anything we would even remotely label as godly. And although Gentiles know of Samson mostly from the exciting children's stories about him, Christians have always recognized Samson's faults. But the rabbis manufactured amazing and fanciful excuses for each one of these dastardly behaviors, even taking it so far as to glorify them. Now, the reason for their unwavering praise of Samson is the exceptional circumstance of his birth that reminds one of Isaac. His mother, Sarah, remember, was barren beyond childbearing years, and then this divine presence came to her and announced Isaac's birth. Remember that whole episode? So the rabbis simply couldn't accept at face value that Samson could be the product of a miraculous birth and still be a self-centered, incorrigible lout. It's actually a lot like the way Christians take the plain case of Jephthah, Yiftah, his rash vow and his daughter who was killed because of it, and decided that since Jephthah was called a Bible hero in the book of Hebrews, he just couldn't have done what the Bible plainly says he did, and what the witnesses said he did, and thus came up with a very creative way around the problem. Well, that's what the rabbis have done with Samson. Well, verse 2 explains that there was a man named Manoah of the tribe of Dan, who had a wife who was barren. When the Bible says a woman was barren, it means that she was biologically incapable of bearing children or she had married so late in life that she had passed her childbearing years. Generally, the fault always fell on the woman, even though in some cases it was bound to be that her husband was biologically unable to impregnate her. Well, on one day, says verse 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and told her that from her dead womb, she would bear a son. Now, we need to brush up on our Hebrew a little bit because the identity of this being that appeared to the woman is at issue for a while in this part of the story. The narrator says that it was the Melach Yehoveh that appeared to this unnamed woman. Malach means angel, or more correctly, it simply means messenger. And Yehovah, of course, is the formal name of God. So as readers of this, we're told immediately that the angel of God came to her. But as we'll see, she didn't know who this person was. Yet the being was sufficiently awesome in appearance that Manoach's wife knew immediately that this was a person of some importance, so she paid fearfully close attention to the instructions that followed. And the being says that beginning immediately, the woman is not to drink wine or any kind of alcohol, and she's not to eat anything unclean. And this is because the son she is going to bear will be a Nazir, a Nazarite, right from the day of his birth. Now, Further, his hair is never to be cut, which is another one of those requirements of a Nazarite. Thus, we have the rare biblical occurrence of what is called 
a Nazarite for life. Okay. That is, Samson would be born a Nazarite and he would remain so until he died. A Nazir usually only took a temporary vow. And once the terms of the vow were fulfilled, he or she was no longer a Nazarite. They no longer had to operate under the law of the Nazarite as found in, in Torah, number 6, if you want to look it up. In general, all Nazarim had three negative commandments they had to follow. First, they were not to eat or drink any grape products. Right? And this included wine or old wine, which is the stronger drink, or even fresh grapes or grape juice. Second, they were never to touch a dead body. And third, they weren't to cut their hair. However, tradition tended, as it always does, to expand upon these general requirements. For instance, while only grape-based products are actually intended as a prohibition to a Nazir, tradition made it that all alcohol was prohibited. Thus, the standard grain-based alcoholic beverages were also banned for a Nazarite. While the words of number six say that a Nazir is not to touch a dead nefesh, a human corpse, okay, tradition expanded it to even include dead animals. Right? Usually the unclean kind, otherwise eating meat would have been kind of difficult. Okay. Then this mysterious visitor says something else of great importance. This son will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. Remember now, the Israel that's being referred to in this instance is the tribe of Dan. Right? Even though the Philistines were also troubling the southern tribes led by Judah at this time. But not all Israel in general. But the key word here is actually begin. In other words, Samson would be the catalyst to start the process of removing the Philistine influence from Israel, but he wouldn't finish the job. And some of that had to do with the fact that we discussed earlier that the tribe of Dan wasn't particularly concerned with their condition. So it's not like Samson was going to have a lot of support in his efforts. Well, this woman turns, she runs home to her husband and breathlessly tells him what has just transpired. And she says to him that a man of God came to her and that his face was fearsome like an angel of God. What she said, when she said, a man of God, this is exactly what she meant. To her, this being was a human male. For she said in Hebrew, an Ish Elohim came to her. Ish means man. Elohim in that day was a general name for a god, any god. The term Ish Elohim is how a prophet was called in those days. Thus she saw this being as but a human prophet, not a spirit being. Even so, this man was very unusual because his face, she says, was fearsome like an angel. Actually, what she said was that his mare was like a melach Elohim. Mare is referring to his overall appearance, not just his facial features. 
And Malach Elohim means messenger of God. So therefore in our modern thinking, it means a regular heavenly angel. She's saying that although he was a human, he had the aura of a heavenly angel. She was very confused, unsure, just what it is that had spoken to her. Well, as a good Hebrew wife ought to do, she repeated to her husband what this man had said to her. And she explains that she didn't think to ask where he was from, nor did she inquire of his name. Now, we've talked about this word name before. But it is a real issue for Gentiles. Especially. Because we tend to get the wrong idea of what name indicated in Bible times. Old Testament and New Testament times. The Hebrew word is Shem. Right? S-H-E-M. We, we say Shem. And the term has very little to do with a mere means of an individual's identification like it does for us today. Rather in those days, a, a Shem told of that person's reputation and his or her characteristics. Oftentimes it spoke of their physical and or spiritual heritage. A name helped to explain the essence of that person, his or her attributes, what they stood for, even what their providential purpose in life was. If the bearer of a particular Shem, a name, was a god... That meant that the name assigned to that particular god or goddess indicated what particular sphere of influence, like fertility or weather or war, that they ruled over. If you were a believer in these gods, that was a very important issue. Because it was essential to know which god to pray to, depending on your current pertinent need. If the name, Shem, belonged to a human, it spoke of his or her innate nature, their abilities, their divinely ordered destiny, or even some important linkage to the past. Thus, when in the New Testament, we're instructed to act in Jesus' name, or pray in Yeshua's name, it isn't really meaning to say his name. In other words, if Jesus had been given the name Steve, we aren't actually being instructed to say out loud or under our breath, in the name of Steve, I pray. Okay. Rather, we're to behave in Yeshua's attributes and character. We're to pray to the Father in Yeshua's manner, in his attitude, in the realization of the status that Yeshua has bought for us. In the unity we now have with him, with all credit given to him. I'm not at all saying that it's incorrect for us to end our prayers and supplications with the phrase, in Jesus' name, Amen. I'm not saying that at all. all right. I'm saying that this phrase, in Yeshua's name, Amen, was not what was intended by the instruction. Okay. Rather, ancient Gentiles, rather innocently, didn't understand Hebrew culture. And they took the word name to mean to pronounce it. Okay. It simply was taken as a means of identifying 
one person from another in a Gentile's mind. So the woman says that she didn't find out what this man's characteristics or his essence was. This Manochnu was a very important omission of information that had to get remedied right away. Thus in verse 8 we find Manoah praying to Jehovah to send this prophet back to them so that they could be taught what was to be done with this child. Some commentators say at this point that Manoah lacked faith or was being impertinent to ask God such a thing. Now I'm not so sure about that. In his mind Manoah needed to know the prophet's attributes, his shem, his name, in addition to getting some direct teaching on just what they ought to do with this coming boy, boy child that's going to come from a miraculous birth. Certainly, what was in Manoach's thoughts was hardly pure, as he too was caught up in some aspects of the Philistine spiritual beliefs. But his motive was to be obedient to the will of God of Israel. So let's back up a minute. Why was Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, to abstain from grapes, alcohol, and any unclean food simply because her child was going to be a Nazarite? See, the mother was not going to be a Nazir. Only Samson. And by the way, it was completely allowable that women could be Nazarites. The answer to that question is as elegant as it is simple. The unborn baby is fully united with its mother. Truly a mother and the babe within her womb are of one flesh. Whatever that mother drinks, the baby drinks. Whatever she eats also sustains the child. Whatever that mother does affects the new life within her. You know, many of the mother's characteristics will pass along to the child. Some balk at the idea that spiritual characteristics or personality traits would pass as well, but I have no problem with that notion. None at all. In fact, we have a good case right here to show that even as an embryo, the baby was a Nazarite. And thus the mother was expected to behave as a Nazarite so that the Nazir characteristics would pass through. You know, it's no wonder that women usually feel as they do about the new life that grows within them. Something we men will never really be able to experience, obviously, or understand. This protective instinct the often greater importance that unborn child carries in her mind even over her own well-being. It's also no wonder that when some misguided woman makes the terrible mistake of aborting her child, that usually soon after, and sometimes for the rest of her life, there will be an emptiness in her soul that she just can't escape because indeed part of her has been cut off. It's a sad thing. But God, recognizing, I think, Manoah's good and proper motives for wanting to speak with this being again, obliges. And and this mysterious man shows up for a second time. And again he comes to the unnamed wife of Manoah 
And so she races to fetch her husband this time. And Manoah comes and greets him and asks if, this, if he's the same person who had come to his wife earlier and the man answers in the affirmative. So Manoah asks the question that was foremost in his mind. What are we to do with this child? Is there any special way we're to raise him? And the man answers by basically repeating what he told the woman in his first visit, emphasizing they should do everything that had been ordered. And essentially the man of God, who was actually the angel of the Lord, didn't answer Manoah's question. The primary concern for the moment was that the mother obeyed all the rules he had given to her. But also contained within this non-answer is a pattern that we probably all can recognize in our experiences with God, but we probably aren't all particularly thrilled about it. We all will will often get a divine assignment, however modest it may seem, and at times be told the ultimate purpose, but what happens in between is left a mystery. We have no idea how to get there from here. We have no idea what the next step is, how the steps are going to come about, whether it's going to be a smooth or a bumpy road, whether it's going to be full of pain or full of joy or a little of each, or if the journey from assignment to completion of task is going to be long or short. You know, we, won't, we don't even know if we'll live to see the culmination of it all. Rather, we're to walk in faith, relying on the Lord in every step. We move forward, we move backward, we pause on a need-to-know basis. And my personal experience has been that rarely does God seem to think I need to know. Very frustrating at times. Well, Manoah, realizing that he's received the full oracle now from the prophet, all he's going to get offers standard Middle Eastern hospitality to this being and requests that this man stay with them for a while and then of course be honored with a special meal. Now of course this spirit being that only appears to be a human being says that if he does stay he won't eat the food. Rather if Manoah insists on giving this gift of food it should be offered to the one deserving of praise and is a burnt offering. Now, right about now, Manoah was beginning to sense that something unusual was happening here. Things weren't really like they appeared. In fact, the being says that the food offering must be offered to Yehoveh. Now, this is really starting to concern Manoah, so he asks the question that his wife had failed to ask earlier. What is your name? What is your Shem? Why did he want to know this being's name? So that when everything comes to pass, he can honor him. But the honor that Manoah had in mind was to honor a human prophet, not the God of Israel. So God says, and what I think is a fascinating conversation, why are you asking my name? It is, and then most Bibles will say, it is wonderful. Now I'm going to quibble a little bit with that translation. The word 
that's often translated as wonderful is Pile. Pile. And remember that the context to the answer of what his name is, wonderful, is what is your name? What is your character? Your attributes? Your essence? And the answer that God gives to that question is Pile. Now, Pile means much closer to incomprehensible, extraordinary, beyond one's ability to understand. Thus, the King James Version, instead of wonderful, says his name is secret, which gets actually closer to the idea. Another version says it is unknowable, instead of saying wonderful, which kind of heads us off in yet another direction, but it's still a little bit better than wonderful, I think. Pile is a Hebrew word understood by the sages of old to define a divine attribute. In our modern, common way of speaking, to say wonderful about something, you know, is, is rather usual and can be applied to just about anything. For us, the word wonderful really means very nice or way above average. It's a statement of joy. Maybe it's even a compliment. I mean, it's usual for a man to say to his date, or his wife, he's married, oh, you look wonderful. Well, we certainly don't mean that the woman looks incomprehensible. (laughs) Or secret. Or we'll say that the newest model of BMW is a wonderful car. And we don't mean that it's beyond our ability to understand. You see what I'm saying? Therefore, the whole intention of this short conversation between Manoch and the angel of the Lord is that Malach Yehoveh is essentially saying, what good will it do you to know my characteristics and attributes because they're utterly incomprehensible to a mere mortal? God is saying, I could tell you, but you have no ability to grasp it. Therefore, think of my attributes as being beyond your ability to even understand them. And so in the New Testament, when we see Yeshua being called wonderful, we need to take it in exactly the same vein. We should not think that we're being told that he's just a peach of a guy. One of the best and greatest men ever to walk the planet. Rather, it is that his true attributes are divine and thus are barely, if at all, within the realm of human ability to even imagine. So Manoah offers the food he provided, it says, on the rock as a sacrifice to Yehovah. Now, interestingly, back up in verse 16, the angel of the Lord told Manoah that he should offer the food as a burnt offering. And in Hebrew, the word used there is olah. Now, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but some things need to be said several times in several different ways in order for it to penetrate. Even though the Hebrew word olah is invariably translated in our Bibles as burnt offering, that's really just an attempt 
to translate a word that essentially has no direct English translation or any other language translation that's reasonable. You see, if you think about it, every kind of sacrifice offered to God on the altar is a burnt offering. An altar is where whatever's put on it's burned up. But not all burnt offerings are an olah. There are several specific types of burnt offerings designed for different purposes, to be used on different occasions, some of them employing animals, plants at other times. And olah is really just one. The best phrase we probably currently have to translate olah is very likely the words near offering. With the idea being that the purpose of an olah is to assuage God such that we can come near to him. Now, one of the things we learned back in Leviticus it was, was that when an olah was offered on an altar, it was always to be accompanied by a micha, another kind of sacrifice. An olah was always to be a clean animal of some kind. A minka was to, was to be some kind of produce. So, as this story unravels here, we see that by divine providence, the two things that Manoah brought as food for the being that he thought was but a human prophet was a goat, which is a, com- a clean and acceptable animal for sacrifice, and some produce, very likely grain. Thus, the food that he brought was completely suitable, as defined by the law, for use as an olah and a mincha sacrificial offering. The olah and mincha then were laid on a rock upon which a fire had been started and some brief ritual occurred after the, as the offerings were burning up. Now a question that ought to enter our minds is was this act proper and legal? You know, God had long ago decreed that there was to only be one place for sacrificing. That it had to be officiated by a Levite priest. And it had to happen on the bronze altar that was ordained by the Lord. People weren't to build their own private altars and themselves officiate over the sacrifice as pagans often did. But the reality is that the priesthood was practically defunct by now. The priests in Samson's day held only limited power and operated only by the leave of the various Israelite tribes. The people paid little attention to them and even less to the regulations of the Torah. At the end of the book of Judges and then on into Samuel, we're going to get a pretty good picture of just how fallen and foreign the priesthood of Israel had become since those golden days of Joshua. Yet somehow, Manoah's offering was found acceptable to the Lord. With Manoah and his wife standing there looking on, suddenly this being melded into the flames coming from the burning sacrifice and shot upwards into the sky and vanished. Well, that did it. 
They both fell on their faces in fear and awe. Uh, me too. Oh yeah. Feet don't fail me now. They both finally grasped just who this being was. And it was neither a man nor an angel. It was Yehovah. How do we know that this being was actually God? Because it says so in verse 22. How do we know that God was appearing as the angel of the Lord? Because it says that directly as well. We don't have to guess. In other words, brethren, we don't have to wonder or have a big debate over who the angel of the Lord is, do we? He is Yehovah. We're told so right here, unequivocally. He is God the Father in one particular manifestation. And while I know it riles up many of my listeners, that I maintain that absolutely nothing in Holy Scripture, New or Old Testaments, makes the angel of the Lord out to be a pre-incarnate Yeshua, I, I can't give you much more explanation for the angel of the Lord. The only reason that this supposition that the angel of the Lord was a pre-incarnate Jesus, the only reason it's ever gained such popularity is because of the doctrine of the Trinity that presupposes that God consists of three and only three possible manifestations and that is because of one verse in the New Testament located in the book of Matthew 28.19 it says therefore go and make people from all nations into disciples immersing them into the reality of the Father the Son and the uh, HaKodesh the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you thus the effect of the establishment of this doctrine is that any and all possible manifestations of God must be one of the three. So then, the only possible question for any divine manifestation, under any circumstance, under any description, is which one of the three is it? Okay. Now, while I absolutely accept the underlying concept of the Trinity, that God is a, a, a compound unity, Right? That he is one, Ichad, yet he manifests himself in more than one way, among which is Yeshua of Nazareth, our Savior. I think we have several examples in the Bible of divine appearances that don't so easily fit into the mold of Son, Holy Spirit, or Father directly. The angel of the Lord is one of some unknown mysterious numbers of, of manifestations of God as Manoah found out. And the thought of God appearing before him in any form made Manoah determine that his life must be over. After all, it was a Torah principle that no man can see God and live. But fortunately, his wife was, re was able to retain some sense of calm and she reassured her trembling husband that the Lord would not have chosen to appear to them tell them what he was going to do, resurrect her dead womb and prepare it for life, come back again, but at Manoah's sincere request, show his acceptance for their altar and then their Olah and Minkra sacrifices by literally inhabiting the flames of the altar fire, only to turn around and kill him. 
Well, about nine months later, the woman had her son. And they named him Shimshon. Now, there's a lot of disagreement over what that name means. And frankly, it varies so much, I don't even think it's worth going into. Because it all lies within the realm of speculation and opinion. The child grew up, and Yehovah kept his word, and he blessed the child. The writer of Judges is saying, when he says those words, the child developed physically, he grew up, and spiritually, spiritually, Yehovah blessed him. Well, then in verse 25, Samson, Shimshon, his calling comes upon him. The initiative for this calling began with God. And of course, the vehicle was the Holy Spirit. And as we're going to see more and more as we study the Samson saga, if left up to Samson, he probably would never have picked up on God's agenda and purposes for him, which was to war against the Philistines. And this falls in line with what we discussed at the beginning, in that neither would the Israelites have risen up against the Philistines, but rather simply sought to coexist and live as comfortably as possible under the circumstances. So because of both Israel and Samson's Passivity became necessary for God to act and to shake up that situation. I don't know how after almost six months of our study in the book of Judges that anyone could now fail to see the parallel between that era and our present era. The increasing spiritual blindness and darkness, the steady slide of God's people, Gentile and Jew, into tolerance of and desire for the secular. The setting aside of God's word in favor of popular religious doctrines. The mixing, the syncretism of the holy with the pure and uh, rather, the holy and pure ways is instructed by the Lord with the impure and common ways of the world that creates an easier life for us. The denial that any of this is even happening. All of this and more is co- exactly common to both eras. Okay. One of the things that is often said is that while Samson was to begin the end of the influence of the Philistines, it was King David who finally accomplished it. I believe we need to rethink that. In that recent events have given us some new information. In reality, it now appears that King David only put the oppression of the Philistines on hold. Because today, the revival of the Philistines at least in name, has once again to begun to harass and influence Israel. Palestinians is but a Greek word meaning Philistines. The Philistines are back in basically the same area they were, Gaza, at the time of Samson, even if they aren't necessarily direct descendants. They have made themselves into a new Philistine nation. 
They are creating havoc. And Israel is responding essentially the same way they did in the time of the judges. Appeasement and seeking a means to coexist with them. If the current executive administration of Israel had its way, it would quickly bow to the Bush administration plan of dividing Israel into two nations, Philistia, Palestine, and Israel. Jerusalem would be split, and the east side become the capital city of the Philistines. But there are many Israeli government officials and citizens of Israel, especially those who live out in the settlement areas of Judea and Samaria, who are the Samsons of today. They cannot organize an army. They can't fight a winning battle over the Palestinians and their allies. Yet by means of their constant and unauthorized disruption of the official peace process, their intractable insistence that they will not leave their homes to the Palestinians, and all other manner of civil disobedience, it derails what years ago could have become a capitulation to the enemy and the division of the Holy Lands in exchange for a short-term and false peace. In the days of the judges, Samson's actions were really only a stall tactic until God anointed his king. And we're soon going to see it was God that led Samson to disrupt the cozy relationship between the Philistines and the Israelites. And if indeed we are living in a replay of the era of the judges, that we can expect the same thing. Meaning that it is the Lord. This is key. It is the Lord who is keeping things riled up between the modern day Philistines and Israel. Just as it was going to take God's king, David, to eventually subdue the Philistines for a time, it's also going to take God's next king to subdue them completely. And finally, in our era, King Yeshua, Jesus Christ, will be that one. We'll start Judges 14 next week.